Welcome to Invention, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Invention. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick, and we're back with part three of our exploration of Coffin Tech. It's Death Tech Month at, uh, at, at Invention here. In the last couple episodes, we talked about like special types of coffins. Originally in the first episode, I think we focused mainly on coffins that were designed to keep you from being prematurely buried and uh, and uh, thrashing about inside your, your grave sealed for doom forever. Uh, and in the last episode, we focused mainly on uh, – well, we, we d- looked at, at length at the Fisk coffin, the – F-I-S-K. Can you say Fisk Coffin? That's almost impossible. Yeah, I'm surprised that it sold so well with a name like that. (laughs) Uh, Which uh, was a strange and elegant invention in its own right. But a lot of what we talked about was stuff to prevent people from having their bodies stolen by resurrection men or resurrectionists who – took bodies from graves in order to sell them to medical colleges and dissection rooms and anatomists. Yeah. So, so yeah, we talked about ways to to safeguard the the, the the casket, the burial ground, putting cages over them, having specially designed caskets to keep people out, weird gadgets to go around your neck, etc. But uh, now we're going to get into, uh, I guess, what we would call active measures. Right. <laughs> a casket or a coffin that fights back. Right. So what if all the last solutions we or all the previous solutions we talked about were just too wimpy? Here is a possible solution. If you want to keep people from stealing your corpse, turn them into a corpse and then they'll have their own and they won't need yours. Ah, you're talking about a casket that kills. That's right. Like if it were a, a, like a 70s or 80s uh, horror film, it would be it would not, instead of being death spa or deathbed, <laughs> uh, the bed that kills, it would be death casket, the casket that kills. <laughs> Maybe that's too close already. It's too on the nose. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, one thing I was thinking about is if you go by Indiana Jones as your main source, you would think that the booby trapping of tombs with uh, deadly mechanisms for crushing, impaling, fatally desiccating, plucking out the eyeballs of grave robbers was sort of a time-honored tradition, right? That this goes back into the ancient world. Lots of tombs are like this. But the sad fact is that I can find almost no real evidence of booby-trapped tombs from the ancient world essentially one possible exception, and that only exception is rumors about the unexcavated tomb of the ancient Chinese emperor Qin Shi Huang, which we already did an episode of uh, our other podcast, Stuff to Blow Your Mind About. So if you want a whole episode on that subject, you should look up our Qin Shi Huang episode. But the short version is some ancient accounts claim that the tomb of Qin Shi Huang is rigged with weapons and poisons to slaughter any potential looters. And I've got a description of the tomb here from the first century BCE Chinese historian uh, Sima Quyan, and it's translated by Burton Watson. Uh, so it goes like this. It says, They dug down to the third layer of underground springs and poured in bronze to make the outer coffin, replicas of palaces, scenic towers, and the hundred officials, as well as rare utensils and wondrous objects were brought in to fill the tomb. Craftsmen were ordered to set up crossbows and arrows rigged so that they would immediately shoot down anyone attempting to break in. Mercury was used to fashion imitations of the hundred rivers the Yellow River and the Yang Sea, and the seas constructed in such a way that they seemed to flow. Above were representations of all the heavenly bodies, below the features of the earth. Whale oil was used for lamps, which were calculated to burn for a long time without going out. 
that is nice. They're like, this is really top shelf when it comes to tombs. Yeah, and tomb technology. I mean, mm-hmm. you got your mercury, you got your automatic crossbows. Uh, you, you'd assume maybe the mercury works kind of like a toxic poison to fill the room with fumes. Uh, very interesting stuff. But, of course, the tomb remains unopened. So. Which, which on one level means, I mean, granted, it's unopened for a variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. But uh, you could say that, hey, just, just the idea that there are crossbows in there, in there, that there are deadly traps in there, could have contributed to its protection over the centuries. That's a very good point. It could, could be like a, a, a mimetic protection. Um, and, it, of course, the thing is we don't know if there's anything to these stories. And even if it was true when the tomb was crafted – I strongly doubt that like crossbow mechanisms from 2,000 years plus ago would still work today. Right. Now, it will be interesting though because uh, as we discussed in that episode of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, we may eventually find out what it, what is going on in that tomb. There's been talk of of actually entering it or sending in, uh, you know, drones to explore it a little bit. Uh, you know, as much as exploration but also to to make sure that the area is protected, mm-hmm. uh, that, that uh, the, the – uh, the artifacts inside are not you know, destroyed in due course due to, say, seismic events or something like that. Right. But maybe we'll send that first drone in and it'll get uh, hit by a crossbow bolt. You never know. That would be very cool. Uh, but like I said, the, the kind of strange and, and disappointing thing is this seems to be the only case I can find of a booby-trapped tomb from the ancient world. Uh, But I would say, on the other hand, the general lack of Indiana Jones-style traps does not mean that ancient peoples weren't very keen on keeping their graves undisturbed. Of course, one thing is just standard-type security features like you would find on tombs we've already talked about uh, in the previous episodes, you know, seals, gates, uh, things being filled in or having huge slabs placed on top of or in front of them, that kind of thing, just to keep people out. But The other thing I would say, uh, picking up on the idea of mimetic security, is like the idea of the mythical curse of the pharaohs. Now, of Mm -hmm. course, that is more or less a a 20th century mythical invention. But it does take slight inspiration from reality in that some ancient tombs are marked with like curses or warnings against people who might disturb them. I was reading a really interesting thing about tomb curses on the uh, National Museum Scotland blog in a post by assistant curator Dr. Dan Potter with a translation that I'll get to in a second. Uh, Now, when I imagine ancient tomb curses and warnings and stuff, I often imagine really vividly violent threats, the like may your teeth turn into bees kind of thing or uh, may you rot erect, you know, the the, uh, Poe kind of direction. But – uh, as an example of the kinds of tomb warnings you're more likely to actually find in ancient Egypt, Potter translates a stone with an inscription from roughly between 1295 to 1069 BCE and is from the necropolis of Sheikh Abd al-Kurna, which is in uh, where ancient Thebes would have been. And this is Potter's translation. It is to you that I speak, all people who will find this tomb passage. Watch out not to take even a pebble from within it outside. If you find this stone, you shall not transgress against it. Indeed, the gods since the time of Pre, who rest in the midst of the mountains, gain strength every day, even though their pebbles are dragged away. 
Look for a place worthy of yourselves and rest in it, and do not constrict gods in their own houses, as every man is happy in his place, and every man is glad in his house. As for he who will be sound, beware of forcefully removing this stone from its place. As for he who covers it in its place, great lords of the West will reproach him very, 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 very much. <laughs> That is a stern tongue lashing. <laughs> I really like that at the end, though. It's kind of quaint and polite. It's like, don't mess with my tomb. I'm dead. I'm a god now. You go find your own tomb. Become a god in your own way. And uh, please, 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 please don't mess with it. I, I love this, yeah, the excessive use of the very here because that, that would not be considered you know, proper in English uh, modern uh, English, anyway, to to use that, but but really, it gets the the point across. Mm -hmm. The more varies, the better. It reminds me, I had a professor once of uh, I believe he was a. Uh, you know, Canterbury Tales uh, classes that I was taking. He was the the professor, and he he liked to stress that while we're not fond of double negatives now, uh, there was a time when you would just quote negate the hell out of something if you wanted to uh, to make sure it was negated. Uh huh. There are great old instances of word repetition in in older languages, especially like from the ancient world. I. I think about uh, the idea of holy, 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 you know. Yeah. Uh, it's just saying like you, you don't say extremely holy. You say holy, holy, holy. You keep repeating the word to emphasize the superlativeness of the word. <laughs> But yeah, I, I like this idea of uh, thinking about the mythology that surrounds tomb warnings as a kind of meme-based security invention. And you could think of that in a religious context as it's invoked here, like you're going to upset the gods, things are going to be very bad for you if you disturb this tomb. Or you could think about it in a Qin Shi Huang kind of context where you could seed stories out with the historians or you know just throughout the culture that there's some mega like killer robots in this tomb you don't want to go inside. Yeah, like one thing I was thinking about is if you just have the, the curse posted, it depends on literacy uh, for it to really convey its meaning. Mm -hmm. uh, not everyone may be able to read, uh, but everyone speaks the language of crossbow. Uh, <laughs> right. uh, but then again, if, you're, if it's not just about making sure that you have a sign posted, but to spread the word of it, to make sure that the curse is known, that's a different uh, thing altogether. Well, should we take a quick break and then come back to discuss some uh, gorier, more modern versions of active measures protecting a tomb? Let's do it. All right, we're back. So let's let's get into the gory details. Right. So we were discussing previously that even when ancient tombs have curses, it seems like they're often less gruesome than you would expect. But leave it to modern Americans and Europeans to take tomb security to re ridiculously nasty, violent places. Uh, as Exhibit A, I would like to read a report from the Stark County Democrat, which was a Canton, Ohio newspaper, the edition of January 20th, 1881. This, this article is called A Torpedo Blows Them Up. This is wonderful. <laughs> yes, please read this in its entirety. Mount Vernon, January 19th. So you got your dateline. A report reaches here that on Monday night, three body snatchers, while attempting to rob a grave near Gann, this county, met with a fatal accident. The story goes that while excavating the grave, the picks came in contact with a torpedo, which exploded, <laughs> killing one of the ghouls named Dipper and mangling the leg of another whose name could not be learned. The third, 
The third party was occupying a sleigh as a lookout, and after the accident, succeeded in getting his disabled companion in the sleigh and driving off. This is one. This is like a page from um, you know a Cormac McCarthy book that we can only find in the Library of Babel. Yeah, Dipper. <laughs> they only know one of their names, and old, it's Dipper. Old Dipper the Ghoul. <laughs> Again, I love the description as ghouls because uh, I think we mentioned this in the last episode, but ghouls, of course, are traditionally monsters of a necrophagious uh, persuasion. They lurk in graveyards and they scavenge the flesh of the dead. But let's come back to that other detail that I imagine a lot of people latched on to, uh, the idea that a torpedo exploded. Right. Uh, yeah. A torpedo blows them up. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm thinking like a torpedo on a submarine? Like did somebody – bury an explosive charge among their great uncle's grave goods, which exploded when the ghouls broke in. No, this was not an accidental explosion of something that happened to be down there. This apparently was a specific technology designed to protect graves by maiming and murdering resurrection men and grave robbers. Yeah, the the coffin torpedo, I I ran across this as well. I was not familiar with it previously. And when I read it, of course, the, the thing that entered my mind is the idea that you have a casket that is fired out of a torpedo tube Uh on a submarine. Right. I thought, well, that's what it is. How weird that I've run across such an invention. Uh, But no, it's even weirder. Yes. Uh, So I've come across two major records of booby trap coffin inventions. Uh, So one is that on October 8th, 1878, an Ohio inventor named Philip K. Clover received a patent for what he called a coffin torpedo. It was designed to, quote, prevent the unauthorized resurrection of dead bodies. <laughs> I presume the authorized one would be the uh, the end times one. Right. Yeah, it would need to be Jesus or, uh, you know, an accepted uh – uh, spokesperson for Jesus. Or a sufficiently powerful necromancer. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the, the torpedo would be loaded with a shotgun-style spray of lead balls and then would be buried facing up inside the lid of the coffin. And if triggered, the coffin torpedo would, of course, blast the thief and possibly kill them. Okay, so in a way, it gets even grislier because what we're talking about is really more comparable with a landmine or uh, or a shotgun trap. The, uh, probably I, a landmine is the more uh, accepted comparison here. Yes, actually one person I'm going to cite in a minute makes exactly that comparison. So another coffin torpedo came out a few years later. This one was patented by a guy named Thomas N. Howell, also of Ohio. So it seems like maybe grave, like wow. <laughs> unauthorized resurrection was happening a lot in Ohio at the time. Uh, Howell says in his patent that other grave torpedoes already exist, but that he's improved the grave torpedo design by uh, including, quote, exterior nipples on the shell and, quote, pivoted swinging hammers combined with a rotary disc or collar for engaging the hammers and by its rotary movement release the hammers, which constitute the essential and important feature of my invention. So he's all about nipples and hammers. Yeah, I don't really have a clear vision of what these hammers are accomplishing. You can look up a diagram on the, I've got a link here to the uh, to the patent for you, but basically it, it, it ends up working sort of the same. It's like a landmine thing. In oh, fact, okay. I, I was reading a blog post about this invention by an anthropologist named uh, Katie Myers Emery who's written a lot on like uh, burial of the dead traditions and stuff uh, in which she says that uh, Howell's model was really more like a landmine than a gun. But she also quotes a contemporary advertisement for one of these grave torpedoes. I think it's for Howell's model, which reads – Sleep well, sweet angel. Let no fears of ghouls disturb thy rest. For above thy shrouded form lies a torpedo, (laughs) ready to make minced meat of anyone who attempts to convey you to the pickling vat. 
I think it really also drives home that the use of the word torpedo has has shifted uh, uh, some in our in our usage. I think so too, because I think of an, essentially an underwater missile, like in right. Hunt for Red October or something. But I love this uh, this pitch here. Sleep well, sweet angel. Let no fears of ghouls disturb thy rest. It's yeah. it's good copy, but it's also not catchy. I mean, I feel <laughs> like the, the Howell's model needs a catchier jingle. Hmm. Like, uh, they won't use me for science. I'd rather stay here and rot. You, you know, the, the other thing I'm thinking is that at this point in our history, like an undisturbed grave is so normal. Mm. I, you know, I feel like I almost I want to attract the ghouls. You know, uh-huh. Like it would kind of make my death more of a celebration. But it's just a, just a thought. Yeah, why not have another boring burial like everybody else? <laughs> you know, why not uh, get things a-popping around your grave? Yeah. Uh, so, in fact, the strangest thing of the story is that this torpedo was not even the first lethal trap for grave robbers of the resurrectionist age. It seems that since the 18th century, there had been what are known as cemetery guns. Uh, that's not a trick name. That just means guns used for cemeteries. Okay. So uh, I found a link to one in particular being auctioned at uh, Sotheby's in January of 2016. It is an 18th or early 19th century flintlock gun originally made out of ash wood, steel, and wrought iron by the Jurgensen Machine Company of New York. I've got a picture of it for you here, Robert. I think this gun being sold at auction is one of the same ones I've read about uh, elsewhere being displayed at a museum called the Museum of Mourning Art at Arlington Cemetery in Pennsylvania. And so this gun would have been positioned on a swivel mount and then it would be mounted at the site of the grave that needed to be protected and then it would be fired by tripwires. So you'd place tripwires that link to the triggering mechanism and if somebody pulls the tripwire, if the tension, you know, uh, goes up on the wire, it triggers the gun and the shot or the ball, I guess, goes out at uh, in the direction of the grave. This seems excessive. Uh-huh. <laughs> Yeah, I'd have to imagine that if these were ever deployed at any kind of scale, they would kill innocent people, right? Yeah. People just happen to be going through the graveyard and they, you know, trip over the tripwire or they, you know, kick the wrong thing. Or, yes, or squirrels would set them off, uh, yeah. birds, I mean, small children. It's, yeah, it, this is... Uh, this is this is ridiculous. Well, now you might wonder if, uh, like, okay, this sounds excessive, so maybe things like this were made but never actually used. But there are accounts of them being used. I found a couple in a book by an author named Susie Lennox. The book is called Body Snatchers: Digging Up the Untold Stories of Britain's Resurrection Men uh, from Pen and Sword, which is a history press uh, published in 2016. And so Lennox says uh, this following account was reported in the Times. I mean the Times of London, in 1817. So apparently there was a really tall guy. There was a British grenadier who was seven feet tall, and he passed away. And for some reason, his very tall body was highly coveted by anatomists. <laughs> Maybe they just... I don't know. They wanted to see what made him so tall, or something. Yeah, maybe there's a standard uh, fee increase for uh, for you know excessively tall or excessively short specimens. Maybe. Oh, maybe at the medical college, it's easier to see a larger specimen from the sitting up in the gallery. Yeah, or know. maybe they thought they could saw him in half and sell him as two. <laughs> I don't know, uh, but for some reason, yeah, his very tall body was highly desired by the resurrection men. So his body was buried in the cemetery of uh, Saint Martin in the Fields, which is this Anglican church in Westminster. 
Westminster. It's in London. And uh, because the seven-foot corpse was known to be of great value to the body snatchers, the sexton of the church, quote, put together a number of gun barrels so as to form a magazine that they might all be discharged together. So he set up a bunch of grave guns uh, all aimed at this grave. And apparently the tripwire that pulled the trigger on the gun battery was attached to a piece of wood. And then the wood was buried just under the surface of the grave. So if you start digging down to access the coffin, you would hit the wood and you'd have to remove it. So in removing it, you would pull on the wood. This would pull the triggers of the gun battery and the person standing over the grave would get hit by a volley of bullets. Uh, and according to this Times report, one night after the burial at about 4.30 a.m., the sexton of the church heard a tremendous report. So he goes out to the churchyard and the sexton finds a bunch of picks and shovels lying around on the ground. And to quote from uh, the Lennox's retelling here, quote, he also found a man's hat with a bullet hole in one side of it. As there was no exit hole, the sexton concluded that it must have lodged in the head of one of the body snatchers, killing him instantly, with his friends taking his lifeless body away with them. So immediately I was wondering, <laughs> wait a second now. If you are a group of resurrection men, you're trying to dig up a body and one of your buddies gets killed – I mean, for the other ones, isn't that just as good? Like you just run off and you sell this fresh dead body now? Yeah, I wonder if a new racket was born that night. They're like, hey, we just keep, we just need to keep hiring new guys into our gang. Right. And we'll just kill them and sell their bodies. Yeah, hey, Jeff, you move the wood. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or better yet, we don't even have to kill them ourselves. We just bring them to the cemetery where they have this crazy gun that shoots people. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You always get the new guy to move the wood and pull the string, <laughs> and you get a fresh body every night. <laughs> Now, needless to say, this would be quite illegal uh, if you were to sit, try and set something like this up today. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think the risk that these guns pose to obviously innocent people would be a, a clear thing mm -hmm. that would make them illegal over time. But even so, I mean, even if you're aiming them at criminals, I don't know. I don't know if it seems right to just like shoot people when they're trying to do something in the kind of gray area space of digging up dead bodies at the time. Yeah. Now, on the other hand, of course, the guns didn't always work. Uh, Lennox also recounts a story from Camden Town in 1823 where body snatchers succeeded in breaching a gun-protected grave just by dismantling the tripwire. So they saw what was going on there and they just took the system apart. Uh, so maybe we should take a quick break and then when we come back, we can discuss some like the end of the uh, resurrection men period. All right, we're back. So, yeah, obviously this threat comes to an end because, I mean, I imagine like most people out there, if you've ever been to a funeral or helped to put one together, the resurrectionist men did not come up. None of these features were, were offered to you uh, at your local uh, funeral home. Nobody was telling you about uh, how you might need to invest in a torpedo for that expensive new casket. Right. So I think there were multiple things that brought about the end of this phenomenon. And, of course, the phenomenon it came in different ways at different places, different times, uh, it would be, again, subject to kind of economic demands like where and when are there anatomists that need these bodies, where and when can they not get bodies through other legitimate means. But one blow to the, the trade in dead bodies like this uh, came with changes not in technology but in social norms and laws. And this, this first shift I think would be in the UK occurring around 1832 when parliament passed the Anatomy Act. And this act did several things but one of them was that 
It expanded the range of categories of unclaimed bodies that could be used legally for medical education and research. So now it's not just like executed criminals, but lots of different kinds of bodies can Mm -hmm. be used. Uh, And similar laws were passed in the United States later on. So that was one change, but it obviously didn't completely do away with this fear because, again, some of the stories we were just looking at were people in the 1880s in Ohio who yeah. were afraid of getting their bodies stolen. And 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 there seemed to be people out to steal the bodies. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, so so that doesn't fully do away with it, but that's that's one dent. I would say another big thing is actually a a further round of technological changes, and I think specifically, it's the most important thing is when body preservation technology changed. Mm -hmm. So you'd get embalming, which became common in the second half of the 19th century. I think it became common in the United States around like the 1880s. Yeah, I've read that it was in large part kind of a post-Civil War thing too because this was certainly a situation where you had a lot of of dead young people who needed to then be shipped back home. Right. Uh, But another big thing, of course, coming soon after that in the the 1900s would be – chemical refrigeration mm-hmm. and body freezers and uh-huh, stuff. Back to a previous invention that we've touched on. Exactly, yeah, air conditioning for the dead. So when human bodies could be stored and protected against decay for a long time or even indefinitely, I think much of the body supply problem went away. But you could probably also say that there might be been a, a – I don't know exactly how demand changed over time. I mean obviously human dissections still occur and, you know, that, that still can be a part of uh, – medical research and education, but it might not be as prevalent a necessity as it once was. But certainly the supply issue has been changed by technology because now you can just have frozen bodies on hand. Right. And again, the culture's changed too. Like more people, it's, it's not this, uh, this taboo thing for the anatomist to eventually have your body and make use of it. And yet at the same time, uh, you know, obviously graves are still robbed from time to time. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Grave desecrations do still occur. They just – they don't have the the economic uh, factor behind them. It's got – it's left – going to be left to the domain of just pure – uh, pure ghouls, right. uh, pure uh, you know uh, necromantics and so forth. Uh, individuals who are probably doing this as a passion, uh, as a hobby, but not as uh, you know their primary means of earning a living. Right now, one thought that comes to mind is uh, there was an old Clark Ashton Smith short story I read that took place in kind of like a you know a dark, darkly fantastic uh, kingdom. And in this kingdom, if I remember correctly, you have the ghouls, the supernatural ghouls, the the creatures that feast on the dead and, you know, inevitably worship some dark, uh, you know, know, necromantic deity Mm -hmm. uh, underneath the city. And then you have humans living in the city above and they've simply established a a funerary practice where the dead are handed over to the ghouls. Oh, okay. And uh, they've made arrangements. They've made arrangements and uh, and it works. Uh, I think in the story, if I remember correctly, the, the the intrigue is because you have some outsiders who show up and they don't know what's going on and then they inevitably uh, you know, run afoul of the ghouls. Uh, but I was like, that's a clever solution here. Like the, the ghouls need the bodies. Uh, the, the living no longer need them. And here uh, the ghouls and the mortals have worked out a deal. They've worked out an arrangement and it works for everyone. But that's essentially <laughs> – that is essentially the original arrangement. That is the original arrangement between uh, the living uh, living beings and the natural world as well. Uh-huh. 
Yeah, that's right. Like if you're when your body is is finished, when life leaves it, uh, there is a process that will take care of it, uh, that will return it uh, to the soil. Well, yeah, I mean, I think there's also there's an interesting cultural and emotional thing going on about the desire for preservation. Now, mm-hmm. Again, the desire for preservation of the of the physical body after death. Not being a, a totally new thing, there, there's it kind of comes and goes at different times and places in history. Like it seems like it was less of a concern, you know, 500 years ago in the United States or Europe, but uh, is is more of a concern after the reintroduction of embalming as a common procedure. But of course, you find it as a, this hugely important and desirable thing in the ancient world. I mean, it was, it was an attractive thing that pulled them in. Yeah. And, and uh, like why is it so attractive? I it doesn't occur to me naturally to find a good reason for that, but but there must be something going on there for a lot of people. Yeah, there's this idea of uh, you know of 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 creating this unlife, you know, this the space between that is uh at least perceived to be incorruptible, right? Mm-hmm. I also wonder too in our modern uh celebrity culture, you look at like what are some of the examples of celebrities that are the, the most worshiped? They're people who who died young and left a beautiful corpse, right? Mm. Um, and, and I wonder if we get into that some that similar idea there. Like, there's this idea that if uh, you know this particular Hollywood star, they died young, and in a way they remain young forever. Uh, they're they're kind of embalmed. The idea of them is embalmed in our popular culture, right? Uh, they get on the Forever Twenty Seven poster. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, which is which is I think it's it's a, it's a different thing. It's not a physical embalming uh, procedure, but it it essentially accomplishes the same thing. Play your cards right, and you get to come back as a hologram or um, you know a character in a TV commercial as well. Oh well, you know one thing I think we might be doing is using our social media accounts to create embalmed versions of ourselves as earlier, younger versions of ourselves to survive as we and our decrepit bodies grow old. And oh, stuff. you don't you don't even have to wait to grow old. I think yeah. every social media embodiment of ourself is is essentially um, a, a version of ourself that is that has been uh, deprived of uh, any natural <laughs> essence and value. <laughs> it is already a, a you know a, a wraith that uh, we have unleashed on the world. The me on the internet is the me I was when I was twenty five. Yeah. <laughs> it just like doesn't go anywhere after. Yeah, that. but of course this is a, this is of course we, we're, we're cracking some jokes here. But of course this is a big concern for the future as the as the number of the dead on social media will inevitably outlive uh, outnumber the living. Oh, I've never thought of that before. But yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, it's it. I forget the exact date on it, but it's definitely going to happen and. And um, yeah, it's and, uh, and 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 then we're going to find that our social media accounts, or at least the ones that have been around for any number of years, are going to be. Uh, it's going to be a necropolis. It'll be the underworld. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Should we call it there? Yeah, we'll have to call it there. But it, but it, I mean, it really does go to show that you know, with new technology comes new ways of having to confront uh, mortality and deal with death and grieving and bereavement and all these things. You know, even something like Facebook, which when it was developed, I doubt anyone was thinking, yeah, we're going to have to look death square in the eyes over this one. <laughs> but inevitably you do. Yeah, like that's just technology is a part of living and death is a part of life as well. So there we have it. Uh, you know, hey, maybe we'll come back to caskets in the future, come back to embalming. Uh, you know, not sure. There's plenty within the, the, the broad world, the broad spectrum of invention. Uh, there are plenty of inventions that revolve around death. Um, if you want to check out other episodes of the show, head on over to inventionpod.com. That is where you will find them. And if you want to support our show, 
rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so. That really helps the show out. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at inventionpod.com. Invention is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 